Well, today we're going to examine the aftermath of God vindicating His Word against Nahash the serpent. Now that the external threat from Nahash has been answered, the focus of the text is going to shift back to the nation of Israel itself. And there's some unresolved controversy between God and His people. There are some issues that still need to be addressed. But as is often the case with this people whom God has set apart in this external national covenant, they are quick to forget and they are not readily sensitive to where they stand with God. And so the Lord is going to have to wake them up a bit in this chapter. He's going to have to make them conscious of their condition. And to do that, He's going to follow a pattern that He's actually used several times throughout the Old Testament up to this point. And it's this. He's going to put them through a covenant lawsuit. And the purpose of this lawsuit is going to be to make the people acutely aware of their sin against God. And so the title of this sermon is Sensibility of Sin. Now my plan is uh, to exposit the text and then to show you how God makes Israel aware of their sin in the context of the Mosaic Covenant and then use that as sort of a launching pad to compare and contrast how God deals with us in the New Covenant in terms of making us sensible of our sin. So I've broken the exposition up into three headings. We're going to see first a heedless celebration, second covenant prosecution, and third mediatorial counsel. Let's look first at a heedless celebration back at the end of chapter 11. Remember from last week, chapter 11 showed us God's Word being challenged. And even though our main focus in that text was on the figure of Nahash the Ammonite, that Nahash was actually not the only person in that text who openly questioned the Word of God. Before him, it was the sons of Belial, the sons of worthlessness, who, who looked at God's choice for a king and openly questioned, how can this man save us? Which means that God defeating Nahash in that chapter by the Spirit coming upon Saul was actually just as much a response to the sons of Belial as it was to Nahash the Ammonite. And so, now that God has vindicated His Word, we read in verse 12 of chapter 11 that the people want to deal with these worthless accusers. The text says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them here that we may put them to death. They want to execute these men, in other words. But Saul intervenes in verse 13 by saying, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Now, most people on the surface interpret Saul's actions here as sort of this uh, magnanimous, uh, righteous act. Uh, you know, look how these people question him, and, and yet he's, he's quickly willing to sort of forgive, to forget, and reconcile. Now, I'm not going to necessarily put this forth with the same level of thus saith the Lord, as the deity of Christ of the resurrection. But I would suggest to you that the text probably intends for us to think of Saul's actions as negligent rather than commendable. Now, why is that so? Remember, these men have been designated with the term sons of Belial. And that word Belial is very important. It occurs frequently throughout the Old Testament. And in the vast majority of cases, really you could say pretty much every case that I found, those who are called Belial or worthless, are men that the text goes on to say are worthy, no pun intended, of death. Let me give you a few examples. Earlier in this book, Eli's sons were called sons of Belial because they stole from the people and they slept with women at the entrance of the tabernacle. And Eli is condemned for failing to put his sons to death as worthless men in accordance with God's law. In Deuteronomy 13, God says that if any worthless men, Belial, rise up in a town and, and tempt you to go after another god, then you shall seek them out and put them to death. In Judges 19, which we considered a little bit last week, the men who rape and kill the concubine are called worthless men. And the whole nation comes out against Gibeah and says, give us the sons of Belial that we might put them to death. And what starts the civil war is the refusal of the Gibeites to give those sons of Belial up that they might face justice. In 1 Samuel 25, righteous Abigail calls her foolish and gluttonous husband Nabal Belial, worthless. And how does God respond? By executing him, putting him to death 
through what seems to be a heart attack. Sheba leads a rebellion against David. The text calls him a son of worthlessness. And what's his fate? A righteous woman executes him by chopping his head off and throwing it over the city wall to end his uprising. And there are more examples, but what I want you to see is that the term Belial over and over again in the Old Testament is used to describe people who are either executed or people are condemned for failing to execute them. And so here we have sons of Belial that have questioned God's word just as the serpent did. And so according to the biblical pattern, what should happen to them? Execution. They should share the same fate as the questioning serpent. And by the way, it's no coincidence that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul takes the term Belial and applies it to Satan himself. You ever wonder what Paul meant when he said, what concord have Christ with Belial? Satan is the original man of worthlessness. And Adam's job was to put him to death in the garden, and he failed to do so. And what is Christ's culminating work? That he executes this ultimate son of Belial. So it's not a stretch to say that Saul should have given these men the same fate as Nahash, their father. And of course, this is not the last time that we're going to see Saul fail to execute justice on someone who is worthy of death. We're going to see that with Agag, king of the Amalekites, in chapter 15. So, once again, the text gives us this good Saul, bad Saul dynamic. He does something good, and then he takes it away on the other hand. He saves the people from Nahash, but he fails to obey fully by doing what his hand finds to do. Now, in response to all this, we read in verse 14, Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Now, why would the kingdom need to be renewed? Remember the pattern that we discussed in chapter 10 of how God brings a man from obscurity to the kingship. He will come first and give the man a private anointing that empowers the man to achieve a mighty act as a public demonstration of his private anointing. And then in response to the public demonstration, the people assemble themselves together and formally recognize the man that God has anointed. Remember what's happened so far. Samuel gave Saul his private anointing back in chapter 10. And Saul was supposed to give a public demonstration of that by going and slaughtering the Philistines, but he failed to do so. And so because of his failure, the kingdom was temporarily suspended. And what I mean by that is lacking confirmation. Saul did not publicly demonstrate his anointing. And so the process of placing him on the throne could not move forward to a public confirmation by the people. And so therefore, a new public demonstration of Saul's anointing was needed. And that's what we got last chapter, when the Spirit rushed upon Saul and he went out and slayed Nahash the Ammonite and rescued the people. So now that we have had a public demonstration of his anointing, we still need a formal confirmation or recognition by the people. And that's what we have here in verse 15. We read there, So the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king before the Lord. The people formally recognize God's choice. Now, on the surface, it seems like all is well. But we need to ask a question. What should have been the atmosphere at this national assembly at Gilgal? Again, on the surface, it seems like the answer is obvious. It should be joy, right? Uh, God had defeated Nahash. The people were saved from their enemies, and they had just formally enthroned the nation's first king. That all sounds like cause for joy. And that seems to be the people's mindset. Verse 15 says, There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So they're celebrating. And it seems like they might have a good reason to do so. But here's the problem. The text has already hinted subtly at the fact that everything's not going well because Saul has once again failed, even in victory. And when you look back at verse 15, I want you to notice something. It says, Saul and all the men of Israel rejoice greatly. Notice who is ominously absent from that description. Samuel. We know he was there. He's the one who told him to go, and we're going to see him in just a minute. But he's not mentioned in the celebration portion of the gathering. This text says that Saul and the men of Israel were celebrating. It's almost like Samuel is standing off to the side watching this, kind of going, you all still don't get it, do you? Now, some of you might think, is that not reading into the text a little bit too far, just because it didn't mention Samuel's name? Are we really supposed to include that this should not have been a joyous occasion? Well, 
I don't have time to go into details, but Hebrew uh, narrative very often makes use of subtlety to convey its messages. And so things that are or are not included become very significant. So I do think that the omission of Samuel's name probably hints at the fact that from God's perspective, celebration is not the appropriate attitude to bring to this ceremony. Now you might also say, well, they're sacrificing offerings to the Lord. So surely the Lord is pleased with that, and it shows that their heart is in the right spot. But remember, just because people are joyfully offering sacrifices doesn't mean that's what God thinks they should be doing. Don't forget, just a couple chapters ago, when the ark came back from Philistia, it came to the city of Kiriath-Jerim, and the men of that city responded with celebration and with joy, and they were giving sacrifices to the Lord. And on the surface, you could say, wow, look how pious they are. They're zealous for God's glory. But in that text, we saw that from God's perspective, they should have been mourning for the sin which had made it necessary for the ark to depart in the first place. And God responded by striking many of them dead. So the fact that the text says that they're sacrificing does not, improve, does not prove that God intends this to be the way that they view the celebration. But the ultimate proof that they don't have the right frame of mind here is found from Samuel himself. Because Samuel gives a speech, and in his speech, Samuel's not in a celebratory mood. He's got some harsh things to say. And this speech would be very out of place if Samuel had just been involved in this lighthearted festivity a couple of moments ago. And so if that is the case, that Israel should not have been celebrating here, then what is the basic problem? It's the same problem of the men of Kiriath-Jerim. Though they have been provided with a miraculous salvation from Naash the Ammonite in the last chapter, the people are completely insensitive to the reason that God had to provide such a miraculous salvation in the first place, their sin. They had demanded a common king to save them when it should have been Samuel who had done so. God had already shown in chapter 7 that he could save Israel from, those very, uh, from the Philistines themselves through that thunderous storm that he sent when the Philistines were closing around him. God had proven that he could save through Samuel. But the people weren't satisfied with that. And they traded their, their eschatological destiny of communing with God under his temple-building king for the same status as the common nations. They should have been mourning that sin in this text. They should have interpreted God's defeat of Nahash as an indictment of their unbelief. Because God had shown them that having a human king was ultimately worthless if he himself did not provide the salvation and the victory. In other words, the events of last chapter should have shown them their foolishness and pierced their conscience. But all they seem to care about is the fact that their human enemy is gone. Their worldview and their religion is entirely pragmatic. We got what we wanted. No more Nahash and we got a human king. Everything's great now. So in other words, this heedless celebration reveals that they are insensible to their sin. And recognizing that is the key to understanding what Samuel is about to do in chapter 12. Israel needs to be made sensible, and the means that God is going to use to accomplish that is found in the second point, covenant prosecution. Samuel has functioned throughout his whole life as both a prophet and a judge in Israel. But now that the kingship has arrived, Samuel's duties as judge are coming to an end. However, he is still going to continue to function as a prophet for a time in Israel. For example, we're going to see him uh, anoint kings in the future. And one of the roles of an Israelite prophet was to act as a prosecutor of God's covenant. Remember, God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai, and it was conditioned upon their national obedience. Anytime you have a lawgiver... When his law is broken, then the lawbreakers have to be tried for their crimes. And the person who is appointed to bring accusations and to uh, carry out the accusation against them, to present evidence on behalf of the lawgiver, is called a prosecutor. And here Samuel is going to act as, as God's emissary to bring a covenant lawsuit against Israel to make them aware of where they stand in relation to the law and the lawgiver. Now, I've broken this second point about covenant prosecution into four subpoints. We're going to see first, the prosecutor vindicated. Second, the lawgiver vindicated. Third, the defendants threatened. And fourth, the sin acknowledged. 
Let's look first then at the prosecutor vindicated in chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. Now you guys are aware of, of the basic uh, outworking of a courtroom situation. In a normal courtroom situation, the prosecutor's life and actions are not examined. But in this case, Samuel begins the lawsuit with an examination of himself. And we can understand why. By demanding a human king, the people, yes, had rejected God, but it's also true that they were rejecting Samuel and his status as judge. So in order to establish that Israel has no just grounds to demand a common king because of something that he had done, Samuel's own personal failings, Samuel begins by calling for a public examination of his own life and ministry. After a few introductory remarks about the king, he says in verse 3, Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind it with my eyes? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. Notice he begins with the demand, testify against me. That's courtroom language right there, testimony. And that helps to establish that this is a covenant prosecution. And then Samuel gives them a series of potential abuses of power that would be common for those in authority. He mentions an ox and a donkey, two of the large beasts of burden. These two animals, I don't have time to give examples, but these two animals are often put together in the Old Testament as sort of a, a representative picture of the entirety of a man's possessions. Samuel's recognizing that men in power often steal from those under them through coercion. This is exactly, for example, what Eli's sons had done to those who brought sacrifices to the tabernacle. And this is what Samuel himself had predicted that the king that Israel would receive would do to them. And so Nat, uh, so he asked them, who have I stolen from? Next he asked who he has defrauded or oppressed. Defrauded or oppressed. Those two words are very often found together in the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 where it is said that Israel will be defrauded and oppressed by foreign rulers if they disobey. So since that phraseology was included in the covenant curses, Samuel is actually declaring that by not doing those things, he's actually been an administration of covenant blessings to the people. Finally, Samuel asks from whose hand he has taken a bribe. That was the very thing that it said in chapter 8 his own sons were doing when the people demanded a king. Now these are all abuses of power that men who have positions of authority inflict upon those under them. And Samuel demands that anyone who knows of any such actions on his part come forward and give testimony. But no one is able to do so. And therefore verse 4 says, in verse 4, they are for, the people are forced to confirm his lifetime of integrity. You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hands. Innocent. Innocent. And once they've made that confession, Samuel then locks them into it in verse 5. And he says, he, sa it says, he said to them, The Lord is witness against you and against his anointed, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. Again, if Samuel's goal is to prosecute the people for demanding a common king, but he could be credibly accused of malpractice, then the lawsuit's effectiveness would be diminished because all they're going to have to do is say, well, you're not qualified to bring these charges against us because you yourself are guilty of covenant breaking. And so by extracting this confession of innocence from them, Samuel secures the legitimacy of his role in the lawsuit. So that's the first subpoint. The prosecutor is vindicated. Second, we will see the lawgiver vindicated. Samuel now begins the prosecution in verse 7. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he has performed for you and your fathers. Notice where Samuel begins here. Again, normally in a courtroom situation, the prosecutor opens his case by laying out all the charges against the defendant and then presenting evidence to substantiate those charges. His case, in other words, is entirely centered around the defendants. But that's not where Samuel starts. Before he gets into what the defendants have done, he says, stand still and I'm going to tell you about what the judge has done. Now why begin with the judge? The judge is not on trial. The reason for beginning with what God has done 
is that Samuel wants to set the covenant transgressions in their proper context. He doesn't just want to list out all the transgressions and render the guilty verdict. Now, he could do that, and that would be sufficient to condemn the defendants. But it would not do justice to the severity of the transgressions. The transgressors would not be able uh, to see their sin in its proper context if he just lists them out. Rather, this is very, very common in these covenant prosecutions. God likes to begin his lawsuits with a clear testimony of his faithfulness to his side of the covenant terms. And in doing so, he's casting the people's sins against the backdrop of his uprightness and thus increasing their guilt. So that's what God does in these verses to Samuel. He begins in verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Now, that's a lot of time uh, summarized in that short statement, at least four centuries. It starts back in Egypt. Before God had ever entered into the Mosaic covenant with Israel at Sinai, God had showed His faithfulness to Abraham by bringing his offspring out of Egypt. And not just bringing them out of Egypt, but bringing them all the way into the land of Canaan in the face of many opposing nations. And then God was faithful to them after they got into the land as they were conquering it. That's what Samuel means when he says, God made them dwell in this place. What place? The very place that they were all standing as this lawsuit was unfolding. That land was not free, nor was it already vacant when they arrived. God had to fight for them. The Old Testament tells us that God, through His angel, drove out the nations as He planted Israel in the land. That is what God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So just the fact that they possessed this land was representative of an entire lifetime, really generations of faithfulness on God's part. That alone is enough to vindicate the covenant maker. But God had the opportunity to show even more faithfulness after they were in the land. Because what do verses 9 and 10 say? But they, the people, forgot the Lord their God, and He sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord, and said, We've sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Astaroth. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And notice what God is doing there. He promised to give them the land. He fulfilled that. He got them into the land and they possessed it. And He made a covenant with them at Sinai that said, if you rebel, I'm going to remove you from the land that I gave you. And what did they do? They rebelled. So what did God do? It says he sold them. Notice that language. He sold them into the hand of Sisera. Israel is like a piece of God's property that he is free to sell and barter as he pleases. And even that fact shows his faithfulness because he said, if you rebel, I'm going to do this to you. And that's exactly what he did. Very often we only speak of God's faithfulness when we consider him giving mercies to us. But when God says he's going to bring punishment or a curse and he does it, that is also an example of his faithfulness. So Israel rebelled and God brought the curse of foreign conquest upon them because he said he would. Now that could have been the end of Israel and God would have been faithful to everything he said in the Mosaic Covenant. Everything. But the problem is that God had made a prior promise to Abraham that righteousness would come into the world through his singular offspring who would possess the gate of his enemies. And that had not happened yet at the point that Samuel is referring to in their history. And so if Israel is destroyed in the days of the judges by these foreign kings, then there is no Christ coming from Abraham's line. And so it's almost like God has two different, not contradictory, but different covenant dynamics he's juggling. He told Israel he'd kick them out if they disobeyed. But he already promised beforehand to Abraham that he would send the Christ through this people. So he has to punish Israel in order to be faithful to the Mosaic Covenant. But he can't utterly destroy them because he has to be faithful to the things that Abraham secured in his covenant. So he sells them to Sisera. 
faithfulness to the Mosaic curses. Then it says he buys them back. Verse 11, the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. Faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Everything that God does is faithful. Whether he punishes or whether he rescues, he is vindicating his name over and over and over again. And so, having set up God's righteousness and God's faithfulness as the backdrop of the prosecution, Samuel now articulates their rebellion. He says in verse 12, And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now we had a whole sermon on what it meant for Israel who had failed to take Mount Zion to then turn around and demand a common king instead of a holy king, to reject their destiny of ascending the hill of the Lord and entering His courts to behold His face. And you would think that that blasphemous rejection of God would have been the last straw. That surely God would have to say, I know I told Abraham that I would bless the nations by sending his offspring from this particular people, but this is too much. They have gone too far this time. We are going to have to bring the Christ into the world through some other means because I'm not going to stand for this treason any longer. I cannot give them a king when their demand for one rises from a heart of rebellion. You would think that would be the position that a just God would have to take in that situation. And yet Samuel says in verse 13, the Lord your God has set a king over you. Their demand was wicked, and yet God granted it. In other words, God was so committed to fulfilling what Abraham secured in his covenant with God that the Christ would come from him, that rather than utterly destroying Israel, he acquiesced to give them a king that they wanted so that they could be preserved. That is unwavering faithfulness. Can anybody bring a charge that the judge of this lawsuit has acted with anything other than impeccable and resolute righteousness? No. The judge has been fully cleared of any wrongdoing. And that ought to have shamed Israel in this moment as they stand there with Samuel. He had just showed them that they rebelled against God and yet God chose to give them what they asked for so that they would not be consumed. Should that not have heaped burning coals on their head? Shouldn't the placarding of God's faithful mercies in spite of their rebellion have produced an immediate shame in them? It should have been enough to soften their consciences and to make them sensible of their sin. They should have begun to cry out in lamentation and repentance right now at this moment in the lawsuit. But this is a carnal people. And they are under a covenant that, as Jeremiah will later declare, has only the power to write the law on tablets of stone and not upon hearts. And so simply recounting their sin in the light of God's mercies is not sufficient in and of itself to make them sensible of their sin. And the problem's in them, not with God. And so therefore the prosecution moves to its next stage. And we to our third subpoint. The defendants threaten, starting in verse 15. In order to press the people's guilt into their consciences, Samuel now issues a threat. And it is a twofold threat, both physical and verbal. We see the verbal portion in verse 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. In other words, God says, if you don't repent and begin to walk in my ways, then my hand's going to be against you again, just as it was in the days of the judges when I sold your fathers into the hand of their enemies. And because Samuel had just recounted that history, God's ability to actually do that to them should be very fresh in their minds. But even after a verbal threat, we still don't read of any repentance and remorse at this point in the lawsuit. And so knowing the kind of people he's dealing with, Samuel is now going to take the threat to the next level, beyond mere words. We read in verse 16, Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. 
Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now I want to point out a couple things about this thunderous event. First, the language of verse 16 is very intentional. Samuel says, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord's going to do before your eyes. And when Samuel says that, he is actually quoting Moses from Exodus chapter 14. When Israel was trapped at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies were descending upon them, Moses told the Israelites to, quote, stand still and see what the Lord your God will do as God then parted the Red Sea for them to cross over. Now, when Moses said that, that was a blessing. Israel was to stand still and see the blessing that God would give. Now Samuel is taking Moses' words that he spoke as a blessing and he's using them to introduce a curse or a threat. That's meant to wake them up, that they have sunk so low that the thing that was once spoken as a blessing is now having to be turned upon them and spoken as a threat. And the specific threat that God issues is a thunderstorm. Now why would that get their attention beyond the obvious noise factor? Well, notice that Samuel says that they've gathered at Gilgal during the time of the wheat harvest. Now you know that in agriculture you have, you have your two basic seasons. You have a seed time where you plant your seeds in the ground and then they grow for a period of months and then when they are fully matured you harvest them. You have seed time and harvest time. Now in that scheme, when do you want rain? Do you want rain when the crops are all done and ready to go? No, because by definition, if there's no rain before that, they won't grow in the first place. You don't want rain at the end. You want rain at seed time. And so in Israel's calendar, the rainy season took place during seed time. The dry season was at harvest time. Proverbs 26.1 says this, As snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. You see, rain during harvest is as out of place as an honorable fool. So then, when they gather at harvest time and an overpowering thunderstorm rolls through the land, right as Samuel has condemned them for their wickedness, then the Israelites have no other explanation for it than the fact that it's a supernatural storm that is sent by God as a judgment upon them. Now, did this storm destroy the crops that they were planning on harvesting? Well, the text doesn't say for sure. But God did say in Deuteronomy 28, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, then cursed shall be the fruit of your ground. So there's good reason to think that God bringing uh, this storm is an example of Him uh, appealing to those exact covenant curses that He had enunciated many hundreds of years ago. And the result of all of this brings us to the final subpoint: Sin recognized. And starting in verse 18b. So far Samuel has vindicated his role as a prosecutor. He's vindicated God as the judge in His covenant faithfulness. He's told them of their sin, and He's threatened them with this miraculous thunderstorm. And now we see at the end of verse 18 that God's prosecution has been successful. We read, And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, because we have added to all of our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. See, now they get it. They've gone from a heedless celebration and perhaps a carnal joy to a sober realization that they are not in a right standing with God according to the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And the text says they feared the Lord and Samuel and were so struck by God's thunderous display that it, the text actually says they thought they were going to die. At one point they say, uh, lest we die. So this thunder that God sent was probably no ordinary thunderstorm. Just, just like the thunderstorm from chapter 7 that drove the Philistines away was no ordinary thunder, this was probably the thunderous roar of a God whose covenant had been broken, mediated through natural creation. And so when faced with that reality, with the imminence of a holy God, the people say, okay, we understand. We have sinned by demanding a king. Now they are seeing as God sees. They know that they are liable 
to the very real and tangible and physical threats of God's covenant with Israel. But the point I want you to see is this. Look at what it takes to make them sensible of their sin. A miraculous, terrifying thunderstorm from heaven. Why would simply proclaiming to them who God was, what He had done, and the holy demands of His law not have been enough to press home what they, uh, the seriousness of their transgressions and bring them to verbal repentance? And the answer to that is found in our final point, mediatorial counsel. Having seen their sin and God's displeasure, the people turn to Samuel and cry out in verse 19, Pray for us. Pray for us that we may not die. And in a remarkable twist, the prosecutor now becomes the mediator. Samuel says in verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. See, Samuel, Samuel recognizes God has put him in the position of mediator, and that therefore he has a duty before God to represent the people before God and to communicate God's word to them. But in order to understand why God is having to deal with the Israelites in this way, I want you to consider something that, that you may not have thought of before when it comes to the idea of mediators in the Old Testament. When we see a mediator in the Old Testament, someone like Moses, uh, the priest, or, or maybe Samuel in this case, we very often point out that those mediators functioned as types of Christ, the true mediator. And that's correct. But what we're not often sensitive to is the ways in which the mediation of those men differs from the mediation of Christ. And here's what I mean. God does not just appoint mediators in the abstract in the Scriptures. He appoints them to mediate specific covenants. And in Scripture, you can't have a mediator without a covenant for him to mediate. And the specific things that the mediator is able to secure through his mediation and the terms on which he mediates are determined by the nature of the covenant that God calls him to mediate. Now, when we think of Christ's mediation, do we normally think of him mediating wrath upon us or covenant curses? Usually not. I'm not talking about Christ's judgment of the wicked in the Adamic covenant. I'm, I'm talk, we know he's the judge of all men. I'm talking specifically about the relationship between Christ and the members of the new covenant. Do we normally think of him mediating curses upon us in that context? No, because the New Testament discusses Christ's mediation in the context of securing salvation as he presents his blood before the Father. And the reason we don't associate Christ's mediation with inflicting covenant curses upon us is because the covenant he mediates is the covenant of grace, an unconditional covenant in which our works are not the meritorious ground of the security of the things in the covenant. Right. In other words, the blessings of the covenant are won by Christ, what he does, and they are received by us through faith alone. The covenant curses we're all absorbed by Christ on our behalf. So you could say, in a sense, there is nothing but blessing left to mediate to us because Christ has perfectly obeyed the covenant on our behalf. There are no more covenant curses because Christ bore them in His body on the tree. And that, for example, is why the Lord's fatherly discipline and chastisement of His children, spoken of especially in the New Testament, has to be differentiated from the covenant curses of the covenant of works with Adam or the Mosaic covenant that we're reading about today. Because the nature of the covenant that Christ mediates to us does not operate on the same principles as the one that we are watching Samuel mediate to Israel. Their covenant was conditionally breakable. And it could be broken if they didn't fulfill certain conditions. And that covenant was not dealing with anybody's eternal salvation. Our covenant is unconditional and infallibly secured by Christ for our eternal salvation. But since we are used to thinking of Christ's, uh, used to thinking of mediation in terms of how Christ mediates for us in the covenant of grace, 
then when we read these Old Testament examples, we often read Christ's paradigm back into them and think that Moses and Samuel are offering the people unconditional forgiveness of sins based upon grace alone through faith alone. Now, to be sure, no one has ever, ever obtained an eternal standing before God outside of faith in Christ alone. But Moses and Samuel were not mediating to secure anybody's eternal standing before the Lord at any point in Israel's history. Only Christ, who has been established as a mediator after the order of Melchizedek, has been appointed to that task. Moses and Samuel were mediating Israel's status in the land of Canaan. And if you pay attention in, in his role as mediator in this text right here, Samuel is not able to offer the people an unconditional assurance that they will be secured in the land forever based upon faith alone. All he is able to offer them is the terms that God bound them to at Sinai. Retain the blessings if you obey, reap the curses if you disobey. Notice first the opportunity for blessing that he holds forth to them in verse 20. Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet don't turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with your heart and don't turn aside after empty things that cannot profit, for they are empty. Now that's subtle, but do you see what he did there? He says, don't be afraid. Okay, but what grounds does he point them to as the confidence that they won't be consumed from the face of the land? Their obedience. Don't be afraid. Obey. Obey the Lord. Turn away from evil. Put aside worthless things. And if that characterizes your national life, then you can be assured that the Lord will not forsake you, His people. Now, someone might say, no, you're wrong. Verse 22 gives them an unconditional promise that God will never abandon. Because that verse says, the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Now, again, on the, on the surface, does that kind of sound like unconditional? The Lord will not abandon you. But then notice verse 25. If you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. So verse 25 interprets verse 22. The Lord won't forsake you. Oh, okay, so this is unconditional. Well, unless you do wickedly, then he's going to sweep you away, both you and your king. So verse 25 is a warning. You do wickedly, you're gone. But here's a tricky question. I, I won't develop it as much as we could, but these are the kind of things that are, that are good to think about. Verse 25 is a warning, but how do we know that it's not the same kind of warning that we read about in the New Testament? There are warning passages in the New Testament. And we would say that those warnings are meant to safeguard the elect, but they do not mean that the covenant is conditional, the new covenant, and can be broken by those truly in it. So how do we know that the warning from this text is not also the warning of an unconditional covenant that is infallibly secured by grace alone through faith alone. Well, among other things, the most obvious one is we know that they were ultimately cut off as a nation. They were swept away because of they broke this covenant. They no longer have a divine right to the land of Canaan. So much for unconditional. The thing promised in the covenant was not ultimately infallibly secured. It was broken. And as an aside, that shows us something important. You do not determine the nature of a covenant, whether, whether it is uh, conditionally breakable by man or unconditionally secured by God, you don't determine that question by looking at warning passages. You don't say, if there are warnings, then that by definition means the covenant is breakable. Now you go to the texts that directly tell you about the nature of the covenant, whether the obedience of those in the covenant secures the blessings or whether God guarantees it apart from the works of those in the covenant. And once you've answered that question, then you go to warning passages and you interpret them in the light thereof. That builds a little bit off of Paul's lecture from last Sunday night. I wish I could say more. But Samuel concludes the covenant lawsuit by acting as their mediator. But the point I'm wanting you to see is this, that through his mediation, he is not able to infallibly secure for them the blessings held forth in the covenant. He can pray for them. He can reiterate the terms of the covenant. And he can even offer an animal sacrifice to remove some of their past defilements of the land so that they can stay for a little while longer, but he cannot permanently secure the blessings for them. Even as a mediator, he cannot stand as Israel's federal head to obey on their behalf, to impute that merit to their account, and thus secure the land of Canaan to them 
forever. Moses and Samuel were mediators, but they could not fulfill the covenant terms on behalf of those whom they were mediating. Their mediation was a type of Christ's, but it's not the same thing in substance. Because in Christ's covenant, this is the beauty of it, the mediator not only pleads for forgiveness of sins on behalf of the people through blood, but he obeys on their behalf and unconditionally bestows the blessings of the covenant upon them without any reference to their own works. Samuel's mediation in this text shows us that this covenant is a carnal covenant, not sinful, but carnal. It published a law to them. It said, do this and live in the land, Leviticus 18.5. But it did not have the means to secure the internal faithfulness of the people. The very thing that the book of Jeremiah says is the deficiency of this covenant. The people look to their mediator and he says, I'll pray for you, but you must obey or you and your king will be swept away. I will repeat God's righteous laws to you, but I do not, by the things published in this covenant, have a means to secure your internal knowledge of sin and cause you to walk in God's ways. Why is it that when Samuel gets to the end of his prosecution, he has to threaten them with his horrific, terrible storm to get them to be sensible of their sin? It's because the covenant he's mediating did not have the means in and of itself on its own terms of reaching into the heart and working a true sorrow for sin, born of a new nature. He reminded them of God's mercies, and that formed an objective testimony of their guilt. And he reminded them of God's righteousness. But that alone did not bring them an internal sensibility of their sins. He had to use carnal threats to reach a carnal people. And what moved them in the end, what moved them in the end in this text? It was what they could see with their eyes and hear with their ears and presented an immediate threat to what they loved most, their own lives. That was the limit of this covenant's ability to convict sinners on its own terms, divine threats that could be perceived through the senses. That's what we saw in Exodus at Mount Sinai. Prior to that whole episode at Sinai, Moses had condemned Israel's sins with his mouth, with his words, many times. But we do not read of any widespread, visible repentance until God comes and terrifies them with dark clouds and thunder and fire from the mountain. That gets their attention, something they can see and hear and feel. Or think of the fiery serpents that poison their bodies. That gets them crying out for help. Or the quail that gives them plague and the fire that begins to burn among them. Or being sold into the hand of a tyrannical king so that their bodies are in pain and they're hungry. Or God threatening to take away the land of Canaan because they were afraid of the giants in the land. God gives them anything like that and all of a sudden it's, oh, we've sinned. We've sinned. That is the means that this covenant had to make them sensible of their sin, external threats. But what we see is that even the sensibility to sin that these carnal threats produced was not a true internal sensibility of their sin. Because several times in the wilderness generation, God brings these carnal external threats and the people cry out, oh, we've sinned, we've sinned. They're made sensible of their sin, just like the people in this text. But the scripture tells us that all but two of them died and went to hell. So what was the sensibility that they experienced? It was external, a carnal sensibility produced by carnal threats. That's what this covenant operated on. And God did this in His wisdom and in His providence. But it was designed to show the world that something more was needed. That man being sensible of their sin needs to go beyond the type of, of carnal self-preservation produced by threats of physical pain and death. And that a different instrument than merely the law written on stone and read by the people or fantastic displays of power from heaven was going to be necessary to make this happen. And so the prophets speak of a different covenant. And one of the things they say will characterize this covenant is a true inward and heartfelt sensibility and remorsefulness of sin. Listen to the words of Ezekiel chapter 36. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And in that day, I will deliver you from your uncleanness. And then notice, then you will remember 
all your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself because of your abominations and your iniquities. You see that? Ezekiel attributes an internal mourning for sin to a different covenant. He says in the latter days, God's people will look inward at their sins and they will hate those sins and it will become an intrinsic part of who they are. And if you are in Christ, you are a member of that covenant that secures a true and heartfelt sensitivity to sin to every one of its members. In other words, a Christian is someone who is sensitive to sin. Let me clarify. We are not saying that nobody who lived under the time period of the Mosaic Covenant was truly sensible to their sin or that nobody was until after Christ came. You read Psalm 51. David was sensible of his sin in the exact same way that we are. Merely having God's Word spoken against it was enough to produce an unbearable internal grief for it. And so many living under the Mosaic Covenant had true sensibility to sin just as us. But what we are saying is this, that the power that worked that true sensitivity within them came to them by virtue of a different covenant with different and better promises and with a different mediator. A mediator who was not just left to tell them what was written on stone, but to fulfill it in their place and then to bring it into their hearts by faith. So very often people will will point out, well, look, there there were saints in the Old Testament. There were people who lived under this covenant that were regenerate, had their sins forgiven in the eternal courtroom, were sensitive to their sin, and so therefore the Mosaic Covenant is Christ's covenant. It is the covenant of grace. It's bringing eternal life and new hearts to men. And what we are saying is no. Men like Moses and David and Abraham and Joshua were members of two covenants simultaneously. Three in the case of David. And we must distinguish which covenants brought them which benefits. The Mosaic Covenant brought temporal benefits in Canaan. The covenant of grace brings Christ and all of His benefits to believers. Now, you may think that's a technical philosophical distinction that's really not worth much of our time, but it is very practical because it's going to determine where you worship at. It'll determine whether you baptize believers on a profession of faith alone or whether you're going to baptize those who profess and infants. If you want a further explanation of that, reference the baptism sermon reviews. Now, as we move to a close... I want to point out two aspects of sensibility to sin that come to us in this new covenant. First, the grounds of Christian sensibility. The prophets are very clear about this. The only way that a man or a woman can actually possess a deep, abiding hatred of sin is through the work of the Spirit in giving a new heart. Earlier I quoted uh, Ezekiel saying that in this new covenant, God's people would mourn for their sin. And in that same passage, he explains what's going to give them the ability to do that. Ezekiel says, a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my laws. And God then adds his amen to this through Jeremiah, the prophet, that in the new covenant, quote, I will write, as you're familiar with, my law upon their hearts. In other words, in order for someone to have a true internal sensibility to sin, there must be a change of the nature. And that is what the Mosaic covenant could never give to those who lived under it. That is why God finds fault with this covenant, as the book of Hebrews says. These people had uncircumcised hearts, stony and rebellious and incapable of hating sin on its own terms. But in the covenant of grace, Jesus does not just mark His people's flesh with a knife. He cuts away the old man and He implants a new principle. And it's one that is vibrant, and life-giving, and gives people a real hatred of that which God hates and a love for that which God loves. That is the grounds of a Christian sensibility. They have a new nature. I know we've heard this before, but it's the most radical thing in the world that distinguishes us from everyone else. You have a new nature. You need to be reminded of that. Second, the means of Christian sensibility. We saw that the covenant mediators used carnal means to provoke a carnal awareness of transgressions, fire, thunder, plagues, droughts, etc. In the new covenant, God does not use those types of means as the principal means to draw out a sensitivity from a new heart. Instead, He uses something different. 
Now, there are various means that he uses in the New Covenant to make us aware of our sins. I'm just going to focus on one. And I believe it's one of the most gracious and yet for the child of God, heartbreaking means that he uses to cut us to the core. And it's this, that in order to make the heinousness of your sin weighty and loathsome to you, God will turn the eyes of your soul to the thought of Christ humbling himself to be crushed and slain for those very sins. Now, this really goes back to the biblical concept of heaping burning coals upon someone's head. If there were no redemption, if God just chose to let all of our sins stand to condemn us and to crush us in His wrath, then even in that case, it would still be appropriate for we as creatures to have an internal sensitivity to and mourning for our sin. Simply the creator-creature distinction establishes that. But because God is faithful and merciful to forgive sinners, then when we are redeemed by the Lord, then not only do we have reason to mourn because we're creatures and we violated God's holy law, that still stands, but we have also confronting before us the reality that the Son of God voluntarily said, I will take the guilt of that one, I'll put it on myself, and I will be crushed and plunged beneath the eternal wrath of God for them. That voluntary act of love on Christ's part heaps more sorrow and more pain for sin upon our heads. When someone justly expects wrath, but instead receives grace, very often that can have the effect of making them even more ashamed and aware of their transgressions. I saw a tremendous example of this a, a couple years ago. I'll make this as quick as I can. Some of you may remember this story. In Texas, there was a, a woman who was an, I think she was an off-duty police officer or something. She was walking back to her apartment. She was talking on the phone. She goes into what she thinks is her apartment. She finds someone sitting on the couch. While she's on the phone, she pulls in, reaches out, grabs her gun, and shoots him and kills him. Turns out she was in the wrong apartment. She wasn't paying attention. So she was prosecuted, tried. And we could say, as Christians, that whether it was premeditated murder or not, she was guilty of negligent homicide at the very least, and God's law condemns that. So she was guilty of negligence that led to someone's death. That fact alone, that she was guilty before God, ought to have produced a sensitivity to sin and a sorrow for that sin. She was guilty. And yet as the trial went on, she was continuing to plead her innocence, trying to reason her way out of things. In other words, you could tell she wasn't really all that sensitive to what she had done. The evidence was overwhelming, but she wasn't very sensitive to it, and she was still trying to plead self-justifying causes. But she was convicted. And very often in these situations where someone dies, the families after the, the sentencing are allowed to make victim impact statements. I'm sure you've, you've seen those before. I've seen a lot of them. And very often in these victim impact statements, the family members will get up and you can tell they are consumed with bitterness and rage and they, they just they let it fly. They, they're cussing, they're screaming, they're, they are as mad as can be at the person who has having to sit there convicted of killing their loved one. And that was what this person's family did for the first three or four people who got up and gave a statement. Then all of a sudden, the brother of the victim gets up on, on to, to speak to the courtroom, and he looks that woman in the face, and with trembling, he says, I want you to know that I love you, and that the best thing that you could do in this situation, for the sake of my brother, who would have wanted this for you too, is to repent of your sins and to submit yourself to Jesus Christ. That is the only way that you're ever going to have any peace in your soul for this. And yes, it was one of those situations where everyone in the courtroom is crying and there's tears and all that stuff. But at the end of his statement, she gets up. This is the woman who had been hardened and callous. She gets up and she runs to him and embraces him. She had been softened. Why? Because someone had given her forgiveness and it heaped a sensitivity upon her that simply being convicted before the law had not been able to do, even though it should have. And that is what we have in the new covenant, but on a far greater scale. We have sinned against the almighty eternal God, and we deserve to be condemned. And you know, you remember your days of being unregenerate and being insensitive to your sin. Your conscience did testify that you were guilty. You can't escape that. You're made in God's image. And yet, it didn't produce that internal mourning. But it is when that new heart and that new spirit is given that the law of God goes inside. And that combined with a realization 
that I should be under God's wrath forever, and yet this Savior gave himself for me. That adds an added layer of sensitivity that cuts you to your core. Have you not experienced that? And that is why we run to the Savior, because he has done that for us. And that only happens when we have a true inward sensitivity to sin. And praise God that he gives us that so that we can appreciate the preciousness of what our Savior has done for us. Now let me close with just a couple of quick applications. First, remember that God never forgets. In today's text, the people of Israel had moved their sin to the back of their minds. They demanded a king in chapter 8, and God had condemned them through Samuel. But we you may recall that was back in chapter 8. We've gone through several chapters, a period of time, and we've not actually seen Israel ever formally deal with the sin that they committed in demanding the king. They kept going about their lives and moving on with their affairs, and they got wrapped up in joy that Nahash the Ammonite was defeated. And at that point, they had completely moved on from their treason against God. And they were using that joy and that celebration as a means of putting their sin out of their mind. And that's why Samuel's having to bring this lawsuit and having to threaten them with these things like a storm to wake them up to the fact that they had moved on from their sin when God had not. And very often we do the same thing. We use time, time, as the chief instrument of numbing our consciences. We sin. And very often we'll offer you know, a quick formal prayer to ask for forgiveness. But we try to move on as fast as possible because we know that it's in that initial moment that very often the heart is the most sensitive and we want to sort of push past that moment. If I, could, if I can just get past that, quick prayer to move me past that, then I know that time will take over from there. And if I just let time pass, I know that my heart's conscience and conviction will begin to subside. And when we do that, we are lying to ourselves about God's nature, that, that somehow His nature is tied in to our finite mind's ability to maintain a sensitivity to sin, that our forgetfulness is paralleled by a corresponding forgetfulness in God. But God has shown us that He does not forget. And fatherly discipline often comes when we have used time as a means to forget our sin and to rid ourselves of a sensitivity to it. So do not use time as a means to numb your conscience. In fact, do the opposite. Immediately after you have sinned and the freshness of that conviction is upon you, that's when you deal with it. That's when you go to Him. Your sin is just as real. Five years afterward as five seconds in the mind of God. So do not make God into your own likeness. Do not think that He is one like you who forgets and who experiences changes in His emotional states. Deal with your sin right away. That will help you maintain a healthy sensitivity to it. Finally, Cultivate and maintain sensitivity to sin by remembering who you are. Paul said, you are the temple of the living God. Think about the Old Testament temple and tabernacle, right? What did they have to do to it? They always had to wash it and cleanse it. They had all these intricate ceremonies because there could be absolutely nothing unclean whatsoever within it. And you think about, uh, ladies, if, if you're dealing with cleaning your kitchen or something like that, you know that if it's been several days, a week or so since the kitchen's really been clean. You've got uh, things sitting all over the countertops. There's dirt on the floor. There's, there's things that have accumulated on the, on the surface of the cabinets and all that stuff. And, and no one particular blemish really sticks out because it's just surrounded by all sorts of things that are out of place. But when a kitchen has been thoroughly cleaned and scrubbed and polished and everything is in order, it makes that one, that one blemish stand out all the more. And brethren, that was true in the Old Testament tabernacle. It was so clean that one blemish would stand out. And, and think about Jesus' zeal for his father's house. You know the story. He goes into the temple and he is so angered at a defilement within it that he overturns the tables and drives them out. Now he did that for a temple that was made out of stone and wood and brick and all those things. And yet the New Testament tells us, you are that temple. In other words, the zeal that Christ showed there for that physical temple is a picture of his zeal to have you who are the true temple purified from every defilement. And so if Christ is that sensitive to our sin and our defilements, we ought to strive for that sensitivity as well. Consider who you are. You're the temple of the living God. If Christ would not suffer a money changer 
to stand in his father's typological temple. He will not stand for sin to remain in your heart. And so picture Christ as, as sort of coming with that same zeal into your own heart and needing to rid you of sin and then use the means that he's given you to allow that zeal to spur you on. We have been given a tremendous blessing. You know your neighbors, your unbelieving friends, coworkers, or whatever. They're, they're calloused. They're hardened. Not you. Not you. You've been given a sensitivity to sin. And it's one that will save you on the final day, not as the meritorious ground of your justification, but because you have been given that sensitivity. That's what distinguishes you from someone else. You have a new principle in you. Think of that. Use that. Don't continue in a callous state. You, don't, you have the power to turn away, unlike those who are still in bondage. Be thankful for that. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.